Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the season of Lent, we're going to be doing a sermon series called Seven, where we are focusing on the seven deadly sins and the seven cardinal virtues. The goal of this sermon series is to help us focus on our journey with Jesus as he moves towards Holy Week. I hope you enjoy. And now our first reading for this morning from 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 30 to 36. Jesus says, Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. So we are doing our sermon series seven, where each week we are looking at one of the seven deadly sins, and we are pairing it with its counterpart found among the seven cardinal virtues. The goal of this series is that each week we will examine this sin, how it impacts our lives, and hopefully leave here feeling a little bit more inspired to want to live into virtuousness in that area of our lives. Last week, we talked about sloth and diligence. This week, we are talking about the deadly sin of greed and the cardinal virtue of charity. To begin talking about the sin of greed, I would actually like to tell you a story this morning about one of the most scandalous examples of greed in corporate history in America. This example or this story, it begins in 1985 in Houston, Texas, when a company, an energy company known as Houston Natural Gas, is acquired by the Omaha-based energy company Internorth. Now, their combined assets, it created the second largest gas pipeline system in North America. The new CEO of this company, a man by the name of Kenneth Lay, he wanted to name this new company Interon. But when he found out that Interon was very close to the Greek word for intestines, in terra. he decided that he was going to go with the name Enron instead. Now, I'm sure that many of you in here are familiar with the name Enron, but what you may not be familiar with is how they came to be in possession 
of more than $100 billion in assets in the year 2000, only to lose all of it the following year in what would become, at the time, the largest corporate bankruptcy in the history of America. Now, to understand the story of Enron, you first need to understand the story of their CEO, Ken Lay. Ken Lay was born on April 15, 1942, in the small town of Tyrone, Missouri. He was the son of a Baptist preacher. He grew up very, very poor. And he had to work extremely hard. He worked several jobs all the time to help himself and his family make ends meet. He tells the story of how when he was a child, he would sit on top of a tractor, and he would be dreaming of how one day he might be able to become part of the world of business. Kenley had great ambition. He wanted to create wealth for himself. And the way that he saw this happening was through education. So in 1970, he ends up graduating from the University of Houston with a degree in economics. He had a PhD in economics, in fact. And with this degree, he becomes one of the first champions of deregulation. At the time that he was coming up, nobody was talking about deregulation, but Ken Lay was. In particular, he felt that the energy markets needed to be deregulated, and his focus was on natural gas. Well, in 1980, who becomes the President of the United States? you remember? Ronald Reagan. So all of a sudden, Ken Lay's crusade for deregulation, it was no longer theoretical. It was becoming actual policy. And this is what allowed for the creation of Enron. Now, the other thing you need to know about Ken Lay is that he liked to take risks. One of the aspects of Enron is they had a trading desk where they would bet on whether the price of oil would rise or fall. This is known as oil trading. And when you do this, it's like gambling. And when you gamble in oil trading, you can win big. But when you lose, you can lose big too, sometimes up to 10 times your original investment. Well, Enron, when they were engaged in this oil trading, they never seemed to lose. And if you know anything about the business world, if you're making bets and you never lose, somebody's going to come take a look at your books eventually, right? So what happens is some auditors come in, and they take a look at Enron's business. And what they discover is that there are two traders who are betting way beyond the limits of the company. And they were hiding these transactions by manipulating earnings reports. They were destroying daily trading records. They were even hiding money in offshore accounts. So these auditors, they come to Kinlay and they say, Ken, there are these two traders who are doing all of this stuff. And what does Kinlay do? Nothing. He goes to the two traders and he says, keep doing what you're doing and do it even more. Because at that point in time, the only part of Enron that was making any money was the trading desk. So they start gambling and they're gambling and within two months, they had gambled away all of Enron's reserves. And when the Securities and Exchange Commission came in and filed charges against these two traders, Kinlay said that he was shocked and appalled to discover their malfeasance. Of course, he had known all along exactly what it was they were doing. But now, with his two top earners out of the company, he had to find a new way of making money. And this is where a man named Jeff Skilling enters into the picture. Now, before we talk about Jeff, I do want to say that uh, his brother Tom is actually here in Chicago. He's a very beloved weatherman. And I just want to say, Tom Skilling, really good guy. Jeff Skilling, as we will discover, not so much. So, let's start talking about Jeff Skilling. 
As you can see up here, Jeff Skilling, he was a graduate of Harvard Business School. And he believed that a good idea was everything. In fact, he believed that if you had a good idea, you should be able to reap the profit from that idea right away. Because what could happen is, once your idea gets out in the world, then, all of a sudden, other people could come along and take your idea and take gain from it. So, what happens is, Ken Lay, he sees Jeff Skilling, he wants him to come to Enron. But Jeff Skilling has one requirement if he's going to be there. He says, if I'm going to come to Enron, we're going to have to convert Enron over to a particular type of accounting known as mark-to-market accounting. Now, what is mark-to-market accounting? I am so glad you asked that question. And I know that you came here today totally thinking, yes, I want to learn about how accountants do their books. So we're going to learn just real briefly, because it actually is very important to this story, how this works. So mark-to-market accounting used all the time by accountants, but they used it in a very specific way. What it allowed them to do is they could write onto their books potential future profits the day a deal was signed. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So let's say Enron signs a deal that in 10 years, they're going to build a power plant over in India. And out of that power plant, they're going to sell power for 10 cents per kilowatt hour. Let's say that's what they're going to do. So even though they haven't built the power plant yet, that's 10 years out, and even though no consumer has actually bought any electricity from this power plant, they are now allowed to write the profits of that deal into their books. So what happens is they sit down and they all get together and they say, well, how much money do you think this deal is going to make us in the long run? They say, well, we combine all these factors together. We'll probably make about $90 million. So the day they sign that deal, they write, we just made $90 million into our books. Of course, there's no way they could actually know that, right? Because the deal's 10 years out. I mean, the truth is, it's 10 years away. And can a lot of things change in 10 years? Oh, yes, they can. But with mark-to-market accounting, none of that matters. Because you write down the profits today as opposed to when money's actually coming into the door. And the great thing about this is that if you have an executive who works at Enron, you get paid bonuses on the very day the deal is signed. This is what I meant when I said that Jeff Skilling believed that if you had a good idea, you should be able to reap the profit of that idea right away. Now, if you're thinking through this, and this is very important to this, how did they make money? They just signed a piece of paper. How do you make money off of that? Well, you tell the world, hey, we just made $90 million in profits. And what happens to your stock price? It goes up, and then you get paid off of that. Does this sound shady to you? Yeah, it does. It sounded shady to them, too, let me tell you. Because they actually, just to prove this to you, they made, I'm going to show you this, they made a little internal company video where they were spoofing mark-to-market accounting. I want to show this to you. Go ahead and watch this. Well, hey, good Rich. morning. How are you? Finally, good great, see you. Jeff. Yeah. Good morning, to see Rich. Todd. Sit down. We've been working hard on this, and we've really pulled out all the stops. Look what we got. Origination. We did $20 million last year. We think we can do $120 million this year. Trading. We did $10 million last year. We think we can do 64 this year. This is the key. We're going to move from mark-to-market accounting to something I call HFV, hypothetical future value accounting. Whoa! If we do that, we can add a gazillion dollars to the bottom line. Whoa, Jeff! 
All right, that sounds fantastic. Oh, Jeff, thank you. That's just superb performance. And you're going to go far, my boy. Probably president of the company one day. You think so? Now, crazy enough, the accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, and the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, they signed off on this. But you can kind of see how this is like a house of cards, right? Because you sign a deal today, and so you can put the profits of that deal on your books today. So we made $90 million, it goes down. But next quarter, if you want to show that your company has any profits, you have to come up with another deal and another idea so that you can show you have profits. And the same is true for next quarter. So you have to keep coming up with better and better ideas all the time. This is where Jeff Skilling does something quite remarkable. He knew that he needed the people at his company to always be pushing the envelope. And so what he wanted to do is he wanted to unleash people's selfish desires. So he figured that if he was able to make the employees at his company as cutthroat as possible, the best ideas would always rise to the surface and Enron would always be one step ahead. To give you a sense of what this environment was like, I want you to watch this scene from the documentary Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. This is going to give you a sense of what it was like to work at Enron. Watch this. One of his favorite books was The Selfish Gene, about the ways human nature is steered by greed and competition in the service of passing on our genes. At Enron, Skilling wanted to set free the basic instincts of survival of the fittest. Jeff had a very Darwinian view of how the world worked. He was famous for saying once in Enron's early years that money was the only thing that motivated people. Skilling's notion of how the world should work really trickled down and affected everything about how Enron did business. He instituted a system known as the PRC, or Performance Review Committee. It required that people be graded from a 1 to a 5, and roughly 10% of people had to be a 5, and those people were supposed to be fired. Hence, this came to be known as rank and yank. I personally am convinced that the PRC process is the most important process that we conduct as a company. I've never heard of a company yet that would be successful terminating 15% of their people every year uh, just to satisfy the fact that the other employees had to vote on them. And so when you're being evaluated by that group, you are getting direct communication from Ken and me about what the objectives of the company are and how you fit with those objectives. It was a brutal process. The ability for a 25-year-old to go in and to be reviewed and to be superior and as a consequence, get a $5 million bonus. I don't think that's repeated in many places in corporate America. Our culture is, is a tough culture. It is a very, uh, very aggressive culture. At Enron, no one was more aggressive than the traders. If I'm on the way to my boss's office to argue about my compensation, and if I step on somebody's throat on the way, that doubles it, well, I'll stomp on the guy's throat. <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that's how people were. So clearly, the traders at Enron, they're motivated by greed. And what does it say in 1 Timothy about greed? It says, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, I think in this particular instance, 
This is very true. Because when you're looking at the people at Enron, the love of money did lead to all kinds of evil. And the traders were at the center of that. Let me give you an example of this. Do you all remember back in 2000 and 2001, there was a power crisis in California? You might remember that. There was a power shortage out there. And in fact, in some areas, because of this power shortage, prices of power rose as much as 800%. That's how much people were paying for their power, upwards of 800%. Now, the fact is, looking back on it, we realized that there was no power shortage. There was plenty of power throughout all of California. The traders at Enron had manufactured this power shortage through all kinds of market manipulations. It begins in late 2000. By June of 2001, the traders had made almost $2 billion for the company. Now, where did that $2 billion come from? It came from the residents of California, many of whom could not afford to pay such high energy costs and who went into debt. Now, I wish I could tell you that the carnage of Enron stopped with California, but it didn't. It rippled out much further than that. You see, in the summer of 2001, the federal government, they intervened to stop the power crisis. And of course, what this meant was is that Enron's money supply stopped. So they couldn't bring in any more money. And at this point in 2001, they kind of run out of ideas. And so their stock price began to tumble and tumble and tumble until November of 2001, they went bankrupt. Now this bankruptcy, it would ripple out to affect all kinds of people. So first of all, everyone at Enron lost their jobs, which I know nobody's really crying about that, but that was 10,000 people who lost their jobs. The accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, which had been in business since 1913 and employed some 85,000 people around the world, was found guilty of criminal charges and they had their license revoked. All of that went away. But really, when you're talking about people who were truly hurt by this, and those people who worked for Arthur Anderson, that was rough, but these are skilled people. They can go find other jobs. The people who were really hurt were these smaller companies that were acquired by Enron over time. So what would happen is Enron, they started buying up these small little utility companies everywhere. Like one of them was Portland General Electric. Had 2,500 employees, not a lot of people. But when they would buy this utility company, what would happen is that the employees of this company, they would have their retirement rolled into Enron's retirement. And what would occur is that the people at Enron, the executives, they would encourage those who were part of this retirement plan to convert as much of their 401k as possible to Enron stock because they're trying to prop the stock price up even though they knew the company was failing. Now I want you to listen. This is the last video we're going to watch. This is a video of a lineman who works for Portland General Electric and he's going to tell you what happened to his retirement as a result of Enron's greed. Take a look. Well, at one time, things were really rosy for us, and we all had some really nice-looking 401ks and pensions, and it peaked, and then it just started going down, and it went lower and lower and lower. The peak, I had about 348000 and I sold it all for $1,200 was what I got for it when it was done. While Enron's stock was plummeting, the retirement accounts of Enron's rank-and-file workers were frozen. 
We were frozen out of our accounts. It was right about $32, I believe. And over that time, from when it was frozen to when it opened up, I think it went down to nine. And we could not access it. And what came out later that was so bad was the fact that uh, Ken Lay and Skilling and all the top people were moving their money then, but we couldn't. The insiders had sold off a billion dollars of their stock. Compare that to the lineman who worked for a state old utility company for most of his life, put away money each month, and what's he have to show at the end of the day for his years of hard and decent labor? He gets a big goose egg. All right. Now, why have I spent all of our time this morning telling you about Enron? Because when it comes to the sin of greed, it doesn't get much worse than that. Enron is pretty much as bad as it gets. And I think why this story is so potent to us is because it illustrates how greed has the ability to be able to disable that moral compass inside of our minds. I mean, the fact is, the people at Enron, they were willing to make money at any cost, and they did not care who they hurt. I've used this analogy before, but I think it works really well in this situation. Greed is kind of like a virus. So when you get sick with a virus, do you know that you're sick with a virus initially? No, it gets inside your body, right? In the same way, greed gets inside of you, and it starts to propagate itself. And before long, it's taking you over, and it's all you can think about. When you get the flu, what happens? You might feel a little tired, right? Maybe you have a cough, maybe a little runny nose. But then when the fever hits, it controls your life, and it's all you can think about. But unlike the flu, I don't think a lot of people think that greed is such a bad thing. I mean, to be honest with you, I think a lot of people think like Jeff Skilling, don't they? They think that selfish ambition is what allows us to do a good job, so a little bit of greed isn't bad, right? But of course, we're in church, so we're talking about Jesus, and we're talking about God. And Jesus, he says, well, actually, I hate to tell you, but greed is a bad motivation. Because what greed does is, in humans, it creates a certain blindness that prevents us from being able to see the plight of our brothers and sisters. So the guys who worked at Enron, the people who worked at Enron, the men and women who were there, they only saw the fact that they could make money. They didn't care that some little old lady in California who was living on a fixed income, that she couldn't afford to pay her electricity bill. They didn't care about that. They didn't care about the fact that she was going to have to go without food or that she might get evicted from her home, which happened to some people in California. All they could see was the money that they were going to be putting into their pockets. Now, this is a very egregious example. Agreed? Yes, it is. But do we all not suffer from a similar kind of blindness? Take a look at what Jesus says right here. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes your goods, do not ask for them again. Do we follow this? I honestly, do we do this? I can tell you that when I'm walking downtown and I see somebody who's homeless, I will throw a few dollars into their cups. But I don't do that for everybody I see. And generally speaking, if somebody takes my stuff, I want it back. <laughs> so, do 
I suffer from the blindness of greed? I would say that yes, I do. And although it's very hard for me to admit this, I am a greedy person. I may not be as greedy as the people at Enron, but the fact is when I walk across somebody who is struggling and suffering because they lack resources, I often try not to think about the fact that they're going through something hard and if I wanted to, I could make a difference. I say to myself, you know, I deserve my money, I work hard for my money, and you know, I just have to say it's, it's hard for me to fix everything in the world. I can't do that, can I? But then I ask myself the question, is that how Jesus would want me to think? And what's the answer? No, obviously not. I mean, the fact is, Jesus wants us to be charitable, right? Jesus says, give to anyone who has need and expect nothing in return. Now, when you hear that, give to everyone who has need, how many people in the world are needy? Oh my gosh, it's endless. And don't expect anything in return? What's your reaction to that? That's not possible, right? Not possible. So what do we do? We set that aside and we say, well, it's nice that he said it, but I'm not doing it. But what that does is it prevents us from seeing the beauty of Jesus' teachings. Because if greed is like a virus that can infect us, infect our bodies, then charity is like the medicine that can actually kill the virus. So what I have found in my life is that when I engage in acts of charity, it makes that blindness go away. When I'm with people who are struggling and suffering, when I can see what they're going through, that's when I want to help them. So when you engage in acts of charity, it changes you. And this is really where the rubber meets the road with this. Because if you make an active decision to be around people who are struggling and suffering, it is very, very hard to retain any level of greed. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you have a friend, not a family member, but a friend who is suffering from cancer. And you go to that friend and you find out that there is medicine that could fix them, but they cannot afford it. Now, if you love that person, and you care for that person, and you see them suffering, and you have the resources to change it, will you do it? Will you do it? Absolutely you would, wouldn't you? Because if this is somebody who you care about, and you can fix it, you will. Because when you see somebody in pain, you want to stop that pain. But when you keep yourself away from people who are suffering, when you don't experience people's struggles, when you divorce yourself from that reality, that's when greed has the ability to grow unchecked. And this is what you find with people who actually are very greedy. If they have a lot of money, they can isolate themselves from other people's suffering, and this causes their empathy to become less and less so that they don't feel that they have to do anything for anyone, when in reality, all that money they have, it could actually really benefit those who could use their charity. So when it comes to the deadly sin of greed and the cardinal virtue of charity. What we have to realize is greed begets greed and charity begets charity. If you allow greed into your life, you're going to become more greedy. And if you allow charity into your life, you're going to become more charitable. And so we need to take the medicine of charity as often as possible, as often as we can. We need to be with those who are struggling and suffering. We need to see the pain they're going through. We need to empathize with them. And we need to give, expecting nothing in return. Now, that's the end of my sermon. 
But do you mind if I tell you one last little anecdote about Enron before I end today? All right, so in November, November 8th, 2001, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, a man by the name of Alan Greenspan, you probably have heard of him before, he came to Rice University to receive an award. The award was the Enron Prize for Distinguished Public Service. And on stage that day was Ken Lay to present the award to Alan Greenspan. Now, I happened to be in the audience that day when this was happening. I was a first semester senior at Rice University at that point in time, and I went to hear Mr. Greenspan's remarks. I knew very little about Enron at the time. I only knew that some of my acquaintances from Rice had gotten jobs over at Enron. I don't remember anything about Alan Greenspan's speech, but what I do remember is that following his speech, he took questions from the audience. And one of the first questions that was posed to him by a student was, how do you become successful in business? And I remember so clearly his answer to that question. He said, above all else, you must be ethical. Above all else, you must be ethical. You see who he's standing with there on stage, right? <laughs> now, looking back on that, I see that as one of the greatest moments of prophecy I have ever witnessed in my entire life. Nineteen days after presenting Alan Greenspan with that award, Enron would declare bankruptcy. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.